Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, folks. Oliver here. This week, I interviewed David Levison, a professor at the University of Sydney and a popular blogger on the blog Transportationist. David isn't new to the world of transport and disruptive innovation. He joined Horace on a sim car many years ago to talk about new modes of transport and cars. I'll link to that in the show notes. He definitely brings with him a tempered view to the benefits and challenges of micromobility, especially around infrastructure and decision-making timeframes, and that those typically have. I found it a great discussion. As you'll no doubt have worked out, this was all recorded kind of before COVID-19 and the madness of the lockdowns really kicked in. But the concepts and things that we discuss here are relatively timeless. Before I dig in, I do want to talk about Triple M, our exclusive micromobility membership. Keeping track of what's going on in this industry is hard, especially now, and there's a heap of very fast-moving news. At Micromobility Industries, we're obviously incredibly bullish about the future of micro, especially post-pandemic, and facilitating low-cost, physically distanced transport around our cities. Triple M is the community that we're building around this movement. We have a dedicated Slack channel, calls with Horace and industry leaders, including the founders of Spin, coming up in a couple of weeks, and we've just done one with Segway and Okai talking about the supply chains in China. We've got a lot more coming down the pipe, and I'm really excited about it. The membership also gives you discounts to the Micromobility Conference when we do uh, get back into having those, swag, and more. If you want to talk about the work and support it uh, that we're doing on the podcast, this is the best way to do it. It costs $100 a year and gives you access to everybody else in the space working on this. At the moment, if you sign up, you get a month for free to trial it. Sign up at micromobility.io or by clicking the link in the podcast notes. And now, here's David. We have with us today David Levison. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I heard you first being interviewed with Horace back on the, in, in a SimCar episode, I think in 2014 or 2015. But I would love for you, probably for the audience who don't understand who you are, um, just to explain a little bit about yourself and, and how you've come to be uh, involved in transport. Okay. I started out as a child in Columbia, Maryland, which is a planned community. And in Columbia, which is located between Baltimore and Washington, the planners led by James Rouse of the Rouse Company, who's a major U.S. shopping mall developer, accumulated a lot of land in Columbia. And my family moved there when I was five years old. And I got interested in city planning at a young age because I was in a planned community and we'd see presentations about how Columbia was different than everything else. And while it wasn't pitched as a utopia per se, it was pitched as the next America, a better place, you know, a better way to design things. And so I got interested in, in urban planning. And when I was a child, I thought urban planning was drawing lines on maps and saying where things should go, because that's what urban planning used to be. And um, when you're reading books, you're reading about the way the world used to be. And I, for many years as a, as a youth, I was interested in that. In high school, personal computers were becoming popular. I got into programming. I started out at Georgia Tech as an electrical engineer. I worked at Hayes Microcomputer Products, the companies that built the modems, which make all those fabulous mating calls back in the 1980s <laughs> type of thing. Yeah. And I decided electrical engineering wasn't nearly as interesting as it seemed. 
And I decided to go back to planning via civil engineering and finished up a civil engineering undergraduate degree, did one year of a planning degree. I'm a planning school dropout and got an internship that summer at the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, where I was working on the travel demand model, the regional planning model. And so it sort of fused my interest in computer programming and transportation planning. And it was a really interesting job for a few years. Wasn't sufficiently challenging because, you know, you sort of look at, well, who are your bosses and what are they doing? And you're looking at them, at them designing the same road for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And it's like, there's roads on the map or transit lines on the map that were lines that were drawn decades ago. And you're basically raising these lines to be full grown adults, but in a sense, they just remain lines and it takes forever to build things. And particularly in the United States, because there's so many veto points in any kind of infrastructure decision. Mm -hmm. So I was working there in the early 1990s and the lines on the map that we were looking at and tweaking back in the early 1990s started actually opening up in the 2010s. And so that was like, did I just sort of want to sit there nurturing lines on maps or did I want to do something else? Yeah. And I was interested in the research side of things. I wrote some papers while I was working there. One of the benefits of working for government agencies is if you're good, they don't actually want you doing too much because that just creates problems upstream. So it's like, well, you can go and do other things if you can do what we've asked you to do in the time allotted. And I got to do work on research papers that were, you know, related to my work, but were also not related to my work directly. And was interested in travel behavior, why are travel time budgets stable over time? So one of the observations that we made looking at household travel surveys was that the travel times in 1958, the travel time in 1968, and the travel time in 1988 for journey to work by automobile in the Washington, D.C. region was the same as it took 28 and a half minutes in 1958 and it took 28 and a half minutes in 1988 for the average commuter to get from home to work. And this is a 30-year period and it's sort of remarkable stability. So I got interested in travel time budgets and there was some other observations of that that other people had made. And from that, I got interested in other kinds of research. Also was interested in transportation economics, toll roads. I went to the University of California, Berkeley to do my PhD and my dissertation on whom the toll falls was about the choice between taxes and tolls by states, sort of coming from the observation that in the United States, states are of different size and the states that are in the Northeast Corridor tend to use tolls to finance their roads while states in the Western half of the United States don't. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, in my dissertation, the argument was that they're basically tax exporting. They're imposing tolls on people who don't vote locally. So in the northeastern states, a lot of the people using the roads in a particular state are from out of state. They don't vote locally, so it's easy to raise tolls on them. You just put a toll gate, a toll barrier on the state line, and that's what the states did. While it's in the west, almost all of the travel is in-state, and there's not that much interstate travel. There's some, but there's not that much, relatively speaking. So you might as well use a fuel tax or some other source of revenue. So got interested in that. I was interested in network evolution. So when I got my first academic posting at the University of Minnesota, did a number of projects related to how networks grow and trying to understand what is the process by which an idea becomes a road? What is the process by which an idea becomes a transit line? 
what's the next link you're going to build, which comes first, the land use or the transport, mm-hmm. those kinds of questions. And so I was at the University of Minnesota from 1999 to, through 2016. I moved to Sydney in 2017, and I'm doing a lot of work here on, and I also as, was at the University of Minnesota on accessibility, uh, measuring basically how efficient is the transport system at doing what it should be doing, which is how many jobs or other destinations can you reach in, say, 30 minutes? Right. And we're able to measure that at a much more detailed level. I mean, I actually started work on this kind of question when I was back in the Merrill National Capital Park and Planning Commission. We were using accessibility as a performance measure. But back then, we didn't have GTFS for transit schedules. And so we just sort of had crude transit schedules. We had crude representations of the street network because OpenStreetMap wasn't available. I mean, there was a census tiger file, but it was, and the computational power wasn't there to use every street in the network to skim travel times. Mm-hmm. We didn't have GPS data to look at automobile speeds. And so the data that's become available, particularly in the last 10 years, is really powerful and allows us to measure accessibility essentially everywhere. So in the U.S., at the University of Minnesota, we set up the Accessibility Observatory and we measured accessibility in for every census block in the United States. And there have been some other projects in other countries which have done similar things. And we're working now on doing some international comparisons of accessibility, which is something that when we were measuring accessibility for one county in Maryland back in the early 1990s, you can only dream of. I mean, I, I sort of imagined doing it for cities in the United States, but I didn't imagine even doing it for the for the world. And now we're doing it for the world. So yeah, amazing. It's pretty interesting how these changes from the technology sector can influence what we can know about urban planning. Urban planners themselves aren't bringing about these changes, but they're, they can take advantage of them. So, you know, the technologies that have been made available by GPS by the smartphone and so on are sort of opened up a lot of new avenues and they're opening up new modes, right? So we have shared bikes, for instance, or Uber, which would be functionally impossible at the scale that we have them without smartphones and without GPS. And so we didn't haven't really had smartphones from, you know, I guess since 2007 when the iPhone was introduced. Mm-hmm. These are very new technologies, and, and the transport field hadn't had a influx of new technologies really since um, the 1910s when mass production of the automobile got going. So it's been almost a century of using the same family of technologies and you know making some tweaks on them, of course. I mean, the car of 2020 is different than the car of 1920, but fundamentally, it's mostly the same. You know, it's got a steering wheel. By 1920, the self-starter was standard. They had four seats. They had the form factor was pretty similar. They were enclosed and so on. There are obviously changes. There's automatic transmission now in a way that didn't exist back then. Air conditioning, perhaps the most important change after the automatic transmission in terms of people's comfort in using automobiles and a lot of safety features. So in theory, it's safer to be in an automobile now than it was 100 years ago. And at higher speed as well, which is why I think... And and they travel at higher speed. And of course, a lot of this is due to the road network, which back in 1910, most of it wasn't paved, certainly not outside of cities. And by mid-1980s, the interstate highway system was functionally complete. And we've, in the United States, and so having motorways between cities and within cities, as well as new traffic control systems, which 
were designed for the benefit of the automobile, traffic lights on city streets, and to a lesser extent, things like ramp meters and speed control on, on freeways help optimize the system. But we've been operating under that basic paradigm for a century. And now we've got new modes opening up, which I think is, is sort of interesting, obviously something that, that you're working on. Oh, look, I'm very excited to discuss with you. You know, Horace's thesis is that we've got these new, these new form factor vehicles that are emerging that are electric and lightweight. Obviously, we define it everything from being like scooters right the way through to these you know, 500 kg quadricycle type vehicles. As you said, you know, there hadn't been really any new technology introduced into the transport sector really and you know until about 2010 and that was mainly sort of a software overlay of a lot of the stuff that's been around with these new vehicles do you see them you know one do you believe in Horace's thesis that this is a new kind of vehicle and then two how are you thinking about them um, as you've seen them emerge in, in the transport sector I think the major constraint I mean, there's a few constraints on their deployment but the major constraint in say most of the United States or a place like Australia is that people don't feel comfortable riding at speed in traffic. And they are not allowed to ride at speed on sidewalks or footpaths. And so there's not a place for them. There's not a network of bike paths in cities that is a speed faster than walking, but slower than automobile speeds and separated from automobiles. Because even if you're going at the same speed as an automobile, you're still mixed in traffic and they're much bigger than you. And I think that's a, a huge barrier that has to be relaxed before you can get widespread adoption of bicycles, e-bikes, e-scooters, and so on. You could throw the technology out there, but without the infrastructure to support it, it's not going to work. And it's different than sort of throwing on the software layer and allowing cars to become taxis, you know, via Uber and their competitors, because that was just an automobile operating in traffic and there was already a network for automobiles operating in traffic. In theory, bicyclists can use the road and they're supposed to use the road, but in New South Wales and all of Australia and New Zealand, as far as I know, the bicyclists are supposed to be wearing helmets. Now, this is got a couple of factors associated with it, and there's huge debates about helmet laws and so on. But the more enforced that a law is that requires you to use a helmet, A, the more likely that when you ride, you are going to be using a helmet, but also the less likely you are to ride because you're not generally walking around with a helmet all the time, and it's inconvenient, and you might not want to do that. And if you look at places where bicycling is successful, helmet laws are not in place. So you look at Northern Europe, you look at China, and so on. People use their street clothes to ride bikes. They're not wearing helmets. They park their bike and they go to work like regular people, not like warriors who are geared up for battle. And so there's this distancing that happens when you put on a special uniform to ride a bike. And that distancing happens on both sides. Drivers look at bicyclists like warriors and look at them as the opposition and therefore drive more aggressively around helmeted bicyclists than around unhelmeted bicyclists. And the bicyclists themselves behave more aggressively when they're wearing helmets and uniforms because they feel more invulnerable because they're wearing special gear. And so we've got this risk compensation that we've done something that's supposed to make people safer, but then it, they use that safety up in additional aggression and basically use this that safety gains by being behaving in a riskier way. And I think that's the hang up to a lot of widespread adoption to bicycling here in North America. And so 
in Europe, I think Horace's hypothesis probably bears out because you have an infrastructure network that's widely supportive of bicycling, especially in a country like the Netherlands or Denmark, but also in other European countries. And France is rapidly moving in that direction and the UK is moving in that direction a little bit less rapidly. And you also have slower speeds within cities. So I mean, a second factor on this is speed limits. And what are the speed limits in and the speed of travel of cars in inside of cities? And here in Sydney, the default speed limit is 50 kilometers an hour. Now, I'm not saying a bicyclist and e-bike can't do 50 kilometers an hour, but that's faster than a lot of people would want to ride. And I think that that creates a disconnect where you don't have a safe space to ride at faster than five kilometers of walking speed and slower than the 50 kilometers an hour of the default street speed. If you lower that default street speed to 30 kilometers an hour, you'd open up a lot more areas for bicycles and e-bikes. And I think that's, I think, another one of the conundrums that we have here. And it's, it's a political problem. There's enough space to do what we want if we make the choice to allocate it in a particular way and to regulate streets in a particular way. But getting from a state where very, very few people ride bicycles to one where bicycling is considered standard practice is a large political step that a lot of places have trouble making because the people who are in power are not themselves bicyclists and don't have I don't identify as bicyclists and they identify as motorists when they are um, themselves driving or when they're in at their desk in their office or in a meeting. They think about this from the perspective of the driver and how do we minimize the driver's travel time rather than how do we allow people to choose the mode they want or maximize safety for vulnerable road users like pedestrians and, and like bicyclists. What do you think will cause the change around that political thing? And I want to put forward a hypothesis, which is we've seen an explosion in the number of people who are buying e-bikes. And we're seeing a lot of people who are buying those e-bikes saying, I'm riding more and I'm riding further than I would with a standard traditional bike. So in some ways, right, they are a different kind of vehicle in terms of the they're purchased and then they're used differently to what a standard bike would be used with. Look, I don't disagree. I've, I've, I've actually... This has been my biggest thing right since the beginning is that these vehicles are new, but infrastructure takes a long time to adapt. So could you see, for example, that that might be where some of that political shift will change? And I want to give the context as well, which is in New Zealand last year, we sold 60,000 e-bikes and scooters. We sell 100,000 cars a year. And next year, we're growing at about 100% a year at this stage, between 90 and 100% a year. So we're looking at probably being like overtaking the number of actual new cars sold this year with these new type of form factor? Well, let me throw another statistic at you, which is true. Last time I looked it up in the United States and in Western Europe, that more bicycles are sold every year than automobiles. Right. So this is true in the United States, which shocks people. And a lot of them just wind up in garages. Some of them are for kids, of course. And of course, bicycles don't last as long as automobiles do necessarily. But there's already a lot of people with bicycles in their garage. And there's already a lot of people who know how to bicycle. And e-bikes is a new thing. And I think it's a new technology in that it's got a new mode in a, in a way because it's got different performance characteristics than bicycles do. Obviously, they're higher speed and they don't require as much effort. But just because you have 60,000 people in a country of, I guess, New Zealand's, what, 5 million people or so, sure. yeah. is that enough to shift the balance? And it might be in urban centers. And so in Auckland or in Wellington, 
you could see that more and more space will be dedicated for bike lanes. And those bike lanes, of course, can be used by any of the micro-mobility modes. Uh, I'll just call them bike lanes because that's what they're traditionally called. I think that that will help within cities. And we need to be thinking about networks for cities as different from networks for between cities and networks within downtown areas as are, are different than networks in suburbs. All of them should accommodate different modes of transport, of course, but they have to do so with different kinds of designs because the expected speeds are going to be higher in rural areas because the distances are greater and the spacing is different in outer suburban areas than in older downtown areas because of historical reasons. And so the kinds of things that you can do in those places are different. The lines of sight are different. There's a lot of different design issues there. And if you can get a critical mass of people, and the word critical mass has got an interesting connotation in the bike community in that I guess back in the 1990s, it particularly on like the last Friday of the month, a lot of bicyclists would all start riding and together, slowing down traffic in, inside of cities and critical mass type of protest in trying to advocate for more bicycle facilities, better conditions and greater safety and awareness and all of those things. If you can get a critical mass of bicyclists and alignment from the political class, I mean, I think the planners themselves are not going to be the barrier. I think it's the political class has to show a willingness to make things a little bit less convenient for automobile drivers and more convenient for bicyclists. And as long as they're willing to take on the motorists, I think that you can move in that direction. One of the other issues, I think, is the level of governance. So in the United States, you have a highly fractured governance system where you have cities and the political jurisdiction for the city controls local streets. And then you have multiple municipalities within a metropolitan area that all have real power. And then you have a metropolitan council of governments, metropolitan planning organization, which also has funding power, which is separate from the state department of transportation. In Australia, I don't know the context in New Zealand well enough, but in Australia, we have states that have power and local councils have almost no power. And so decisions are made from the point of view of what's good for residents of the state rather than what's good for residents of the local community. And because there's a different population being sampled, they value different things, right? If you're looking at the state, then you're looking at, you're privileging long distance travelers. And if you're looking at the neighborhood, if they don't vote in your community, then you don't feel any obligation to give them high speed travel through your community. And so your point of view differs. And in your community, in an urban neighborhood, you're more likely to have bicyclists making short distance trips and they'll be voting in your local community, whereas there'll be longer distance trips passing through, but you don't care about them. But from the state's point of view, they're local, right? From the state's point of view, they're trips that happen within the state. And so understanding the governance structure, I think, affects how these decisions are made as well. So having a more decentralized government, having more power distributed locally, I think would favor the deployment of bicycle lanes. I think you can see, you know, for instance, it's the mayor of Paris or the mayor of London who are promoting bicycle networks within their city, but it's not the transport minister for New South Wales, which includes not only the city of Sydney, which is, as a council, is a pretty relatively small area, including downtown, but many, many other councils that are part of the metropolitan area, as well as many councils that are part of outside of the metropolitan area, but are part of the state. 
their point of view is different and they're going to think about this from a much higher scale. And I'm not saying that they're welfare maximizing. They're probably more likely to be vote maximizing, but their voters aren't the ones who are riding bicycles. The ones who are in power right now, their voters aren't necessarily the ones who are riding bicycles and they don't feel the need to appeal to that constituency. I also get it as well for the political capital that sits around street allocation, even in cities, which is that, you know, people who are, who have parking right. I mean, you can see the example right now on Valencia, uh, not, not Valencia, on Market Street in San Francisco, where they're talking about having removed all of the cars. And yet there's a bike store that's on Market Street that's complaining and saying, look, we, we our business is going to be destroyed if you remove two car parks from in front of our shop. And they're the ones who are, in theory, meant to be benefiting from having all of these people bike past their shop. And so I, you can see it, which is it ends up being a highly localized opposition and then the challenge for being able to go and say, like, we want to remove car parking or, or reallocate certain yeah. lanes, you know. Removing parking is a, another aspect of this, right? So it's one thing to lower the speed limits, which everybody in the neighborhood agrees with and everybody who's outside the neighborhood opposes. But removing car parks is something that everybody who's in the neighborhood opposes and people who are outside the neighborhood support because they want more, more space for movement. And so local governments are going to have more on-street parking if they're in charge. And the state government is going to have less on-street parking if it's in charge. And they'll have more clearways, is you know, the term they're using in Australia. And so I think this is a problem now. I mean, there's a lot of evidence which shows that removing on-street parking doesn't actually do nearly as much damage to businesses or doesn't do any damage to business at all that they think that their customers are driving up in far greater proportion than they actually are. And obviously there's parking on other streets. People can walk an extra block, especially if they're fit enough to buy a bicycle, they can walk an extra block to get to the bicycle <laughs> shop. So I, you know, the on-street parking is often used by employees and owners of these shops rather than their customers. So there's a lot of disingenuousness about parking. I see it at my neighborhood group. When I go, I always come away really annoyed from those meetings and question why I went. But their most hot issue, hot button issue is they have trouble finding parking, on-street parking in front of their house because there's a new office park that was built in the neighborhood, but you know across the street that doesn't have enough parking. So people, instead of taking public transit, some of them will drive to work and then park in the neighborhood during the day and then drive home, you know, at the end of the day. And for most people, it's fine, but there's more demand for car parking spaces than there are parking spaces. And there's people with night shift who are working in the neighborhood and so on, that this creates an issue. And you've got a lot of the employees, you know, it's two hour parking, except for residents, but then you've got employees who every two hours come and move their car and I mean, I can see it and it happens. And I mean, I if I remembered the way the neighborhood used to be and I drove a car, those things might annoy me, too. I don't have either of those two things going for me. So I'm looking at it and saying, well, this is an underutilized resource. And if you're going to have a parking space, it's better than somebody uses it, then it's empty. Maybe it'd be better not to have the parking space at all. But of course, then you don't have any place to park your car. And so you'd be upset about that. But I understand the problem. But it takes some political will to overcome those kinds of problems. Charging for this is another one of these solutions that technically feasible, but, you know, is it worth doing? You, know, you could charge for non-resident parking and that, that might discourage it and ensure that there's enough parking spaces that a resident can find a space within, you know, a house or two of their own 
house or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. All of which kind of begs the question for me, which is where are there examples of, because what we're talking about really is is a shift, you know, as a new mode is introduced, because you think about it and you go, okay, you want, you want to be able to operate these vehicles safely within the city and you want to be able to go and you don't want to be on the footpath, you kind of want to be on the road, you don't want to be in the traffic though, you kind of want your own lane, etc. This is kind of an infrastructure question. And Horace has oftentimes cited the fact that like, you know, this is sort of like the car being introduced to the city, that there's historical examples. You look back and you say, this would be comparable to that. When cars were originally introduced, it would have been amazing in the beginning because it offered all this freedom, but then offered, you know, it quickly descended into pandemonium with people parking kind of wherever they wanted because there was no idea of parking infrastructure or that there was no idea of traffic control signals or there was no idea of these other things. And so so my question is, is there, do you see that there is a similar set of parallels around this introduction of new technologies? Is there anything that we can learn from that or introduction of other new technologies around how this might play out? I think it plays out differently in different places. I think you need to have sort of a sufficient threshold of people who want to take advantage of these new technologies. And while there is an early adopter group that's certainly buying e-bikes, and I see more people on e-bikes and e-scooters and e-skateboards now than there were five years ago, obviously, it's still not most people. And I don't know that the uptake rate is the same. And second, I look at who are these people, and these people are typically younger adults who are buying these devices. While I think the automobile appealed more to the upper classes. And so you've got the upper classes, of course, hold more political power than young people do and are more engaged in the political system. So when they were in power, they were able to implement traffic control in their city. And there was a whole lobby behind it of automakers and auto parts stores and auto dealers and petrol stations and fuel companies and so on that was all advocating for a particular restructuring of the street network. There's a great book, Fighting Traffic by Peter Norton, which outlines how what he refers to as motordom sort of took over city streets and restructured them for the benefit of the of the automobile. So this was a sort of coordinated effort by people who You know, I mean, the auto companies weren't initially the largest companies in the United States, but they eventually became that. I don't know that the bicycle companies, the e-bike companies, are going to become the most powerful companies in the United States or Australia or New Zealand and get that kind of political power. And so it's more on the users to have to push this forward. So it's going to be more of a bottom-up rather than a top-down type of change. So I think there are significant historic differences rather than parallels that are going to lead to this having a different kind of outcome. We're also going to see more, because it's 2020 rather than 1920, we're going to see more regulation of the new modes that's introduced than, you know, the automobile was essentially introduced in in an unregulated environment. So start with the steam automobile. So steam automobile was developed from the late 1790s through the 1830s. And there were steam autos running the streets of London in the 1830s. I mean, you should really think of them as steam buses but they were untracked and they were not powered by horses. They were powered by steam engines and they were making runs on the streets of London. But they were regulated out of existence because they scared the horses, because they were heavy and harmed the roads. And it took a hundred years before 
the right form factor for the automobile and the technology was mature enough that it became a mass market good. We see with scooters and particularly, but bicycles as well, that there's still some concerns about safety in a way that people aren't concerned about safety in an automobile for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily rational. I think in the case of scooters, it's probably rational. I think in the case of bikes, it might not be. But that's going to lead to there being a more cautious deployment. And, and we had the shared bike deployments, the shared push bikes, not the shared e-bikes that came out a few years ago. And they were widely spread in China. And then they started entering North American markets, Oceania markets. And they really failed quite badly in Australia. I've only been in Australia about three years. And in that time, I've seen the the rise and fall of bike sharing, right? So it comes in in late 2017, and by late 2018, it's already done. And then Linebike comes in with shared e-bikes, which you see a few of them around. And Mobike has got something similar on the streets now. But they're not widely used. But all of the shared push bikes that were just dropped on the street really gave people a sour taste in their mouth about the deployment of shared bikes and how them being deployed in an unregulated way is problematic in a way that in the 1920s, people should have had that feeling about the automobile because the automobile killed lots of people. But it was a time when life was cheaper, apparently. So people were, society was more accepting of people being behaving dangerously with an automobile. And Peter Norton in his book, he talks about this some as well, how sort of the first deaths by automobile were treated much more seriously than after a while people just began to accept it. And the blame was shifted systematically from being on the part of the driver to being on the part of the pedestrian. The term jaywalking was invented, for instance, because originally pedestrians could go wherever they wanted and then motordom, trying to regulate the behavior of pedestrians for the benefit of automobiles, said, no, you have to walk on the, on the sidewalk and only cross at the intersection when you have a traffic light authorizing you to do so. And anything else is jaywalking and illegal. And so if you were jaywalking, then the fault of the crash was yours rather than the car for driving too fast and being negligent. And that was a, obviously very clever on the part of the people who were promoting the automobile, but for society led to a lot of downsides and encourage people to behave more recklessly in cars. And it's only in the last few decades that, you know, the Northern European countries have started to make any crash is by default the fault of the automobile unless it can be proved otherwise. And so the burden of proof has been shifted back in a few countries. But generally, you you look at newspaper articles that describe crashes between vehicles and bicyclists or vehicles and pedestrians. And the blame is always shifted onto the vulnerable road user. Was the bicyclist wearing a helmet? Was the bicyclist wearing reflective gear? Was the pedestrian jaywalking? And I'm not saying it's never the fault of the bicyclist or the pedestrian, but the bicyclist wearing the helmet should have no bearing on whether the car hit them or not. I mean, that might have a bearing on whether they died from it or not, perhaps. But Did the pedestrian cross the street? Well, yeah, the pedestrian might have been in the roadbed, but were they crossing the street reasonably? They're allowed to cross the street in most places. And if they look both ways, they might have thought they had enough time and, you know, maybe they missed something. Maybe the car's lights weren't on. It was dark. 
maybe the driver was distracted and should have slowed down and didn't. But often the driver swerved to the side of the road where the pedestrian was certainly legitimately being. Um, There was a case in Sydney last month where a drunk driver swerved off the road and killed four children and hit another one and injured that child severely. And they were walking along basically the side of the road rather than in the road itself. But you're not safe because the driver's driving too fast and the driver's inebriated. And obviously that driver got arrested, but this kind of thing happens too often and often happens without witnesses or the only other witness who would testify has been killed and the driver gets off and it was the pedestrian's fault. It was the bicyclist's fault. It was the scooter rider's fault, potentially. You know, this is one of the issues that we have to resolve is who has right of way. But in a world where most people identify as drivers, they're going to think about this with their frame of mind as being empathetic towards the driver rather than as towards the pedestrian or the bicyclist. And that's where you really need to make this social shift. And, you know, more people having bikes helps make that social shift come about. But I don't know if there's a magic number of a certain number of bicyclists for this to be the case. Um, The Netherlands had, in the early 1970s, had a campaign uh, which is translated Stop the Child Murders, which I think was pivotal in changing the culture there from being very pro-automobile to being very pro-safety and pro-pedestrian and pro-bicyclist and making the environment, the urban environment, much better for the non-auto modes. That hasn't permeated the United States or Australia or New Zealand, as far as I can tell. And so we still have a lot of pedestrian deaths and pedestrian deaths have gone up significantly in the United States in the last few years, while other deaths are by automobile are essentially flat. You know, cars are getting safer for the occupants, but the cars are getting more dangerous for everybody else. And I think that's a problem. But unless we're willing to address those problems, we're not tackling the safety problem. And they're part of a family of problems of we give over too much space to the automobile. We give over too much impunity to automobile drivers because the political leadership identifies with the automobile. And if you have a political leadership that identifies as a bicyclist, you'll see a difference or a pedestrian, you'll see a difference. But we're not there yet in most places. And I I think that's the fundamental issue. Look, I completely hear you on the political capital side of things. But that's also where I think this new, because these vehicles are cheap, they are very useful in the in the urban context, and you were like, like you know what we're seeing is a fifty to sixty percent growth in Europe in terms of sales. You know, hundred percent growth a year in New Zealand. I tried to find the uh, figures for Australia. Uh, as you know, uh, cost six hundred dollars to get that data from customs, so I'm not going to get that <laughs> from them anytime soon. But the point that I can see is that these new vehicles are emerging, and the numbers will change. And so you may you you know it's just a matter of time in some ways before you can start seeing that. But I do hear you about the the fact that the political lobby definitely exerts its power in very particular ways, which is, yeah, the way that they've even framed the discussion around the fact that people get hit by these vehicles, you know, cars, for example. Like, I'm not against cars. I, I think cars are great. I just, in very particular places, I think in urban environments, down, like downtown urban environments, it doesn't make any sense to be saying we're going to rely on the car as a primary mode of transport, just because of this basic geometry problem. I think the part that I'm still trying to get my head around is how does that translate from, hey, we're seeing a lot of sales of these vehicles into 
you know, government funding decisions around infrastructure and, and providing that the willingness and the political will to actually go and build that new infrastructure. How long does that take? The thing that strikes me, having kind of now been in this world, I guess probably two years or so, is that the vehicles themselves are evolving incredibly quickly. The sales of them are exploding. We've got these new, you know, these shared scooter companies, which have they've emerged and they've grown and they had a hyper growth period. They've now kind of gone into a little bit more of a sort of level set, like, you know, cities are knowing how to absorb this new form of technology, but the infrastructure question, that is the big one that I just can't see being solved quickly. If we were to take the average government, how long does it take for them to be able to absorb a new technology like this and start making infrastructure that would make that safe? I don't think there's an, there's an obvious answer to this. And we can look at, you know, places where bike lanes have been reasonably quickly deployed. You know, you can look at Minneapolis-St. Paul region. I used to be living in Minneapolis. Bike lanes went from being pretty sparse back in 2000. There was still some bike lanes along the river, and so there was still a biking community because you had separated bike lanes on a relatively nice, relatively flat path, to by today, many of the major arterials have bike lanes on them, which are at least, you know, separated if not protected. I mean, they're not really protected the way you'd like them to be. There's no physical concrete in a lot of them. It might just be a bollard or paint that's separating them from traffic. But there's a lot more than there used to be. And bicycle mode share has gone up in Minneapolis since, you know, one of the leading bicycle cities in the United States. And Portland has done something similar. But what we're talking about is in the central city. And so the central city of Minneapolis, which has a little over 400,000 people, is in a city of the metropolitan area of three and a half million people. So you're talking about a little bit more than 10% of the region has bike lanes on many of the arterials. And the rest of the region doesn't. And of course, most of the rest of the United States doesn't. And so this is the kind of thing that if you have the right political leadership and if you have critical mass and you've got the right kind of lobbying, you can do in a city pretty quickly. It's not technically difficult to do this. Every time a road comes up for resurfacing or restriping, which, you know, I don't know what the rate of that is here because you don't have the same kind of weather damage in the Australia, New Zealand, the way you do in the northern states of the United States. But, you know, would be every 10 or 20 years, every road comes up for some sort of repair. And at that point, you relook at the road and you relay it out. So it's something, a change that could occur over a decade if you wanted it to, I mean, there's just, you know, there's some physical time that it takes to deploy all of this. It could be done faster if there was more interest in doing it. But where are the companies that are selling these devices in terms of lobbying local governments to provide infrastructure for them? Well, the industry is pretty fragmented. I'm sure there must be some sort of trade association, and I'm sure the trade association says this would be wonderful. But where are they lobbying? And how are they doing this? And who are they up against as well, I think, is probably a very valid question. Well, who are they up against? I mean, they're up against public works engineers who have always done things in a particular way. They're up against city council members representing drivers and who are, you know, an average age of 60 or whatever and have a certain way of doing things and just are reluctant to change. But they're not, they're not coordinated and they're not lobbying. And part of it's because there's no money to be made directly from bike paths. There's money to be made by selling devices that can use bike paths, but there's no money to be made directly from bike paths. I remember you saying when we were when we were prepping for this, it would be a lot easier if bike lanes cost five hundred million dollars every time you deploy yeah. one. <laughs> right, because then you'd have construction firms bidding for them and lobbying for them, and we don't have construction firms lobbying for them. I mean, there might be, 
you know, some small construction firm that specializes in painting bike logos on streets, but that's a pretty small business. So having the construction lobby or the land use lobby behind this, the way they're behind some other large infrastructure projects would be helpful. Having the micromobility industry lobbying for this would be helpful. So in the United States, what the cable TV industry did when they were trying to get franchises to lay out cable TV lines in cities, they obviously directly would directly profit from having the cable TV lines that they owned, but they would give out special golden shares to influential citizens. It was a policy called rent-a-citizen. And so you'd give them stock in the local cable TV company, and they would go and advocate to their colleagues and friends and people of their peer group as to why the cable TV guys are good guys and you should, you know, let them wire up your city. And cable TV construction is disruptive. There's multiple companies bidding for this. And so you only want to give out one franchise in a city because you don't want all of the different construction. At least that's the way the thinking was in the 70s and early 80s when these were being given out. Or you had franchises for streetcars going back to the 1890s and early 1900s, and people would bid to get the franchise for the streetcar line on a particular street or on a particular region, but often they were initially on a street-by-street basis. And they would offer to pay the city something in exchange for the privilege of running streetcars down the street. And, of course, collecting the revenue from people paying for it. Right, because they could toll it. They're yeah. tolling the service, right? And so right. they're getting revenue from this. There's no revenue model behind bike lanes. And I think this is a, a real problem. And, you know, if you, if you, had, it, if you had the revenue model, you, you'd be able to do this much easier. Especially because you're oftentimes competing against parking, which, is, which does have a revenue model, right? Like that's the, other, right. that's the other alternative of that use of the space on the street versus just having a sort of clear way, right? So... Yeah. And you could see, you know, I mean, shared bikes have a revenue model and you could see them, you know, dedicating a certain amount of revenue towards infrastructure. You could imagine there being a special tax on bicycles or e-bikes in order to provide infrastructure for bicycles and e-bikes. But when you propose this kind of idea, of course, you get pushback from people saying, well, but cars don't pay their fair share, which is generally true. And so why should bicycles and the answer is yes, but of course, bicycles don't pay anything right now for infrastructure. And so any number greater than zero, I think, would would help along the way. That's not entirely true. It depends, I guess, on the jurisdiction. But for example, like in New Zealand, it's all general. It comes out of a general tax fund. It's not like... Yeah. yeah. It, okay. I mean, but you have a motor fuel tax that's paid by automobiles that's proportional to use. It might not be fully compensating for the cost of use, but it's proportional to use and it generates a large sum of money. And in many jurisdictions, it's either dedicated by law or implicitly to pay for road infrastructure. Yeah. You know, in I don't know the context in New Zealand exactly, but I believe that there's basically some dedication there. In Australia, it's implicitly dedicated. In the United States, it's explicitly dedicated right. towards road construction. Yeah. And again, I don't, I don't want to if you tax bicycles, you make ta- bicycles more expensive and then fewer people will have them. And that's not a good thing. But on the other hand, having no bike lanes is also not a good thing. And so if you need some sort of symbolic payment or perhaps slightly more than symbolic payment, but you know, not an onerous payment that would help fund this infrastructure so that bicyclists who benefit from these bike lanes existing would be paying at least something towards the bicycle bike lanes existing, the way transit users pay transit fares and the way automobile users pay a road tax, a either tolls or fuel tax or some combination of that plus registration fees. 
something along those lines, I think would help in the Western countries, the English speaking countries, move bike lanes forward a little bit Mm -hmm. in a way that relying on the munificence of City Hall is not necessarily going to work because we know it's not working because it hasn't worked so far. Yeah. And just just waiting for critical mass and magically they'll it'll happen. I'm not convinced. I mean, certainly the more bicycle users there are, there'll be more bike lanes, but it might not be proportional to the additional number of bike users unless there's some systematic mechanism to tie bicycle usage to bicycle infrastructure. Yeah. And we don't have that now. Saying we're going to just take away parking lanes and give them to bicycles is going to run into local opposition. Taking away road lanes and giving them to bicycles is going to run into to higher level jurisdictional opposition on many streets. Mm-hmm. And taking away footpath space or making footpaths eligible for bicycles is unfair to pedestrians. And there's not a lot of space in a lot of places to do that. It's going to run into a different set of opposition. So while there's enough space to do this, you have to confront somebody who's already got a claim to that space, and that's not free. Now, if you can get a consensus behind, well, we have to make our cities better because of global climate change, I think that's an argument that can be made in certain places, but you have still lots of governments that are not fully behind that kind of argument. Yeah. And also, again, you run into the nimbyism of local opposition, which is like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, all, I'm all for that, you know, <laughs> but don't you dare take away my car park, you know, and it's, um, yeah. yeah. Well, look, I, there's, a, there's a very interesting point here, and I really want to come back to it, which is about urban planning and the form that, you know, in many ways, our urban built form, especially in most in sort of Western democracies, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US, etc., their built forms were all kind of really largely built out during the era of the automobile, sort of post-1945, et cetera. And that's where the sort of majority of that growth happened. And there was a built environment that really is quite car dependent in terms of its transport sector. How do you see that changing over time? Because things like, I think about things like minimum parking requirements, for example, and the work that Donald Troop's done around, you know, hey, it ends up meaning that your entire built environment ends up very sprawled. And back infilling all the stuff requires us to go back and say, well, we need to work out how to shift our transport systems off the car as being the predominant and only modes of really moving people around our cities. Do you think that these, these vehicles, these new types of vehicles, will help enable us to further that discussion? That actually that's a mater- that will have a material impact? Or do you think that, that you know, it's relatively immaterial? Well, let's start with, you know, you've got different kinds of urban environments. You have, I mean, sort of the simplest version of it is you have pre-automobile and post-automobile urban environments. Okay, and so like if you say, what does the urban environment look like before 1923 and what does it look like after 1923? I pick 1923 because it's the peak year for trams or streetcars in most of the Western countries in terms of ridership, aside from a spike just during World War II. The... Roads that were in street networks that were built before 1923 tend to be smaller, narrower than those built post-1923. So the advantage of the later roads, post-23, but especially post-1945, is they're wider. And so they have the space to put in the additional lanes. You just don't have the demand in those suburban areas for bicyclists lobbying for them. While in the places where you have the demand or the urban areas, that's where space is the scarcest. So it would be relatively easy. I don't want to say it's easy, but it'd be relatively easy in post-war street environments to put in bike lanes because you have the right-of-way for it. You've got 
space on the side of the roads that buildings aren't built right up against the side of the road. You've got lanes that are very wide. You often have shoulders that could be converted. There's just a lot of land out there. Whereas in older urban environments, you've got the buildings are right up to the footpath and the footpath is pretty narrow. And then it's right up to the curb where the street is. And you've got on-street parking and a street that's only a few meters wide. It's very hard to stick in an extra lane. I want to say it's impossible because obviously it's possible, but you have to make a trade-off there to do that. And so that's an issue. But I mean, you can even look at how difficult it is for cities to dedicate space to public transport. Right, exactly. Dedicated bus lanes, for example. Dedicated bus lanes or tram lanes, which obviously will improve the throughput of transit vehicles, but will improve person throughput because transit vehicles hold a lot more people than automobiles do. And that's very politically difficult to do in many cities. And so you see a lot of potential that if, I mean, Sydney's got a few bus lanes, but a lot of potential for more of them. But it's just politically difficult to take the space from cars or from cars either moving or parked in order to paint the lane red so that it's for buses only. Or you see in cities like San Francisco, the pedestrianizing Market Street proposal came out in the early 2000s and it's implemented in 2019 or 2020. You know, this is a very long time to do something that's relatively simple. Market Street is the most transit-oriented street in San Francisco. You know, you've got underground, you've got BART, and above that you have underground Muni system, which is basically a, a streetcar system. And then on the surface you have streetcars and buses and bicycles, and you did have private cars and taxis. Taking that street away from private cars and taxis, even though there are substitutes nearby, was just very politically difficult. And the consequences of it are fine, right? I mean, the world hasn't come to an end. There's not massive congestion in San Francisco because of this. But even in a relatively liberal, and I'm using that in the American context, liberal place like San Francisco, that would be relatively sympathetic to public transport from the North American perspective, taking their best street and making it pedestrian and transit only was really, really difficult. And so I'm sort of stuck on if it's going to be that difficult to do this for public transit, it's going to be as difficult to do this for bike lanes. You know, bike lanes don't necessarily need to be quite as wide as a bus lane. You know, maybe it's half as wide as a bus lane, but you still have the same kind of problem. And, you know, if you take away a half a lane, do you have a half a lane? What do you do with the other half of a lane? Is it just a buffer? Well, if you have, have excess road capacity, street capacity, that's fine. And so Minneapolis, where the streets are wide, it's not as big a deal to do this as in say, downtown Sydney, where the streets are relatively narrow. So I think that's the kind of issue that we're bumping up against. Now, you had mentioned something like minimum parking requirements. And I think, you know, removing minimum parking requirements is something that if you believe in the free market, you should do because the free market will provide as much parking as is actually needed. But the problem is we don't have a free market and we get spillovers. And that's what people are concerned about. And so the NIMBYs, the people who don't want development. They don't want development for a reason, and they don't want development for the reason that they believe, whether this belief is well-founded or not, they believe that the development will provide negative externalities that will fall on them. And these negative externalities include things like congestion and spillover parking in front of their houses and pedestrians littering on their sidewalks and so on. And, you know, they might believe there'll be extra crime and other kinds of things, and some of that's tinged with racism, but things like congestion aren't tinged with racism. 
They believe you've put more development in their neighborhood, there'll be more congestion in their neighborhood. Are they wrong? I don't know. Now, do they own the right to the road? Do they own the right to a congestion-free road? I don't think they do, but they believe that they do. And they believe they own the right to the car park that's right in front of them, even though it is still a private... And they believe they own the right to the car park in front of their... The right to park in front of their house without anybody who's not at their house parking there. Yeah. That's a stranger belief than perhaps because, you know, they don't own the road. But by custom, they have that right. They have that privilege. So by precedent, you're asking them to lose something they believe they possess. Why should they agree to that? You haven't given them anything in return that they think benefits them sufficiently. You're not paying them off somehow. And the question is, well, if you can't beat them politically, then you need to buy them off. And clearly you're not beating them politically in most of these places, at least in places where the NIMBYs are winning and denying development and you know, I, most of San Francisco and other, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially in the United States, less so, much less so in Australia, where it seems like the advantage of a state government is that they're less sensitive to these NIMBY complaints. Yeah. But not completely unsensitive to them, but less sensitive to them. Yeah, it's been very interesting learning about the political structures that exist uh, within New Zealand. So in Auckland, we have yeah. a larger political structure because it's an entire super city. Whereas in uh, the city that I live in, it's a sort of a series of five governments that have all come together about various things. And we don't have a kind of a regional government that's able to do these sort of things and make these what would look like uh, wider, bigger, enlightened decisions around things like parking. Anyhow, hey, look, I am aware we are running right up against time. So, David, look, this has been a phenomenal chat. I'm in nothing, if nothing more than simply because I think that you you bring a sobering view to the sort of the hype, I think, of that, that uh, Horace and I bring to micromobility in terms of thinking, you know, hey, look, the vehicles, we can see, we can see on this side, the vehicles are coming and that they want to be here and that people will want to buy them. And then it's just that, yes, but you, there are all these other things to consider. Um, and, and oftentimes I think we're maybe slightly more optimistic than uh, maybe than, than realist. So is there anything that for folks who want to learn a bit more about you, I mean, I, you're on Twitter quite actively. Um, how would people find you there? At Transportist with no vowels. So T-R-N-S-P-R-T-S-T. Excellent. And hopefully you can add that to the show notes or whatever. Yeah, you yeah, I'll add it to that. the show notes as well. Absolutely. And um, I blog online at transportist.org. There you can find my books and papers. And just came out with a book on the 30-minute city and designing for access. And so talking about accessibility and things that we can do to improve accessibility within cities. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you back on uh, in the not too distant future. Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks.